0: This is the Reformed Libertarians Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute with Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Baus. We explore free society from a reformed perspective. You can find us at reformedlibertarians.com.
1: We talk about culture, society, politics, economics, theology, philosophy, worldview, and more, helping those interested in liberty and human flourishing to think about them based in the Reformed faith.
0: This is episode 15, and we're discussing whether Christian civil governance can be theocratic. I'm Gregory Baus, here with Kerry Baldwin. We're talking about how the term theocratic has been used and two key elements of a particular sense of theocratic, namely the monopoly state and civil establishment of religion, that must be rejected in a genuinely Christian view of civil governance we also touch on how some who support a theocratic view go wrong in their eschatology. Carrie, besides the fact that the term is obviously derived from a combination of theos, meaning God in Greek, and the suffix kratia, meaning rule in Greek, what else can we say about the use of the term theocracy?
1: It seems the original use of the term theocracy, perhaps by Josephus and rendered in English by John Donne, if not by others before him, was in reference to the sort of organization revealed by God for his people under the Old Mosaic Covenant. But as sometimes happens, the term took on a broader use. And you'll see that English language dictionaries, for example, speak of theocracy as rule by religious leaders or priests or civil officials of whatever sort being regarded as civilly governing by guidance from the divine or from deity or deities. As you might recognize, it's pretty vague. Apart from the question of what might be taken as divine, the notion of how the guidance might operate is left open or undefined.
0: Yes, that leads us into an ambiguity concerning the question of how one's central religious commitments relate to the whole of life, including cultural views and activity, which includes political life. Some would say every political view and activity, as with all beliefs and actions, every political system or order or community, is inherently theocratic. They would say it's simply a question of from which God one is supposed to receive political guidance.
1: As those holding to a reformed view of the teaching of Scripture, we recognize that no one is without a central religious commitment to something as self-existent, that is, something as divine, whether that be the true Christian God or to some idol. As those holding further to a neo-Calvinist view of the relation between religion and all of life, including cultural life, that includes political life, we recognize that everyone's politics, even if not explicitly or consciously, is in fact dependent on their general view of reality, which is directed by their central religious commitments.
0: When we sometimes use phrases like, all of life is religious or is religion, we know it's hard enough to explain to some fellow Reformed who hold to a kind of scholastic view that we are not collapsing nature and grace or failing to distinguish creation and redemption, nor are we confusing the holy and the common or saying anything like, all of life is ecclesial. That's especially difficult since some who have claimed neo-Calvinism do make those errors. Still, if someone insists on using theocratic as a synonym for the inevitable religious commitments humans have, which bears on all they are, believe, and do, we're not going to dispute about terms as long as what's being referred to is made clear.
1: However, one of the problems with using theocratic in that way, of course, is that whether intentionally or not, it often obscures the introduction of another sense of the term into the discussion. Sometimes this other sense of theocratic is held to be a necessary entailment of the universality of religious commitment and the inevitability of such religious commitment shaping one's general view of reality upon which one's politics depends. But this other sense of theocratic is not necessary. Gregory, how could we explain what this sense of theocratic involves and why it's objectionable?
0: There are two key elements of the objectionable and non-necessary sense of theocratic. One element is what we call monopoly, and another is what we call civil establishment of religion. The sort of monopoly referred to here is coercive monopoly or the monopoly of a state. And by state, we mean some territory in which a monopoly on the use of coercion and supreme decision-making or final say is exercised. This monopoly is an enforcement of a claim to exclusive ultimate control or prerogative over persons and property. But specifically, it is enforcement of such a claim over persons and property that the state does not own, and that belong to others.
1: So this claim over what belongs to others brings in the idea of ownership. Ownership is the right to exclusive, ultimate control, use, or disposal of a resource. God has given each person a stewardship over themselves and their property. In relation to other humans, we call each person's stewardship of themselves their self-ownership. And this self-ownership can be extended to acquisition of ownership in scarce or rivalrous resources. We can also call ownership of one's person and property a property right, and in this sense, a right is a legitimately coercively enforceable normative claim namely on one's person and things. So, Monopoly then is false or counterfeit ownership. It's a usurpation of ownership. If you have the actual right to exercise exclusive ultimate control or prerogative over something, then you are the owner. If you exercise or enforce a claim to exclusive ultimate control or prerogative over someone or something belonging to someone else, you cannot have such a right and you are a monopolist or a
0: usurper. Exactly. This is pretty straightforward. The central issue of politics is the relation between or coordination of might and right, or a question of the just use of coercion. There are two basic forms of coercion, or two ways in which coercion can be used. One way is to initiate coercion, that is, the first use of physical force or the credible threat of it, against another's person or property. Examples include such things as murder, rape, assault, theft, kidnapping, and fraud, and we call an initiation of coercion, including credible threat of it, against another's person or property, aggression. Another way coercion can be used is responsively, or more precisely in proportional response to aggression to some prior initiation of coercion. So for example, to shove someone would be an act of aggression if it was not in a proportional response to aggression. But if you're standing on my toe, pushing you off might be a proportional response and entirely legitimate. Carrie, in some very basic terms, how can we understand this foundational issue in relation to the teaching of Scripture?
1: So because God has given to each person that primary stewardship over themselves and their property, which in relation to others is a property right, a right of and an actual ownership, that rightful ownership entails that there is then a necessarily corresponding normative obligation that each person must refrain from initiating coercion against, that is, refrain from aggressing against, each and everyone else's person or property. This God-given universal obligation is a moral norm expressed in the biblical prohibition of murder and theft, for example, but it is also a civil-justicial or political norm, often called the non-aggression principle expressed in the biblical affirmation of the law of proportionate retribution or lex talionis. For example, in Genesis 9, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And this requires proportionality, which limits not only the degree or extent to which coercion may be used, but whether it is used at all. To respond with coercion to what is not itself coercive is disproportionate and aggression.
0: So there is aggression or initiatory coercion against another's person or property, which is always illegitimate. It is always and everywhere a violation of someone's right and so is inherently unjust. And there is proportional responsive coercion which is legitimate and just. And when a group of people seeking to enforce a monopoly, that is, a claim over a territory of other persons and property belonging to others that the monopolists don't own, seeking to exercise a monopoly on the use of coercion and supreme decision-making or final say, asserting exclusive ultimate control or prerogative over such persons and property, and this is what all states are by definition, then this necessarily involves aggression, the inherently unjust initiation of coercion against others, persons, and property. For a state to be a state, it seeks to enact a power to which it cannot have a right. Such a group of people as a state is saying to other people, In a territory, only we, the state, are allowed final say in the exclusive ultimate control of you and your property, and for any person or group of people to say such a thing is an initiation of coercion against others' persons and property. This is very, very simple.
1: Here's a way to understand it clearly. If I and a group of my friends went around to every house and business in your area and said, look, you're going to have to do things as we tell you now. And for the privilege of receiving this service of being told what to do, you're going to have to pay us money on a regular basis, or we'll take your stuff and maybe lock you in a cage, or maybe we'll kill you. This would be rightly considered entirely illegitimate. And there are zero considerations or matters of fact that make any state different from this in any relevant way. Now, someone might pose an objection and say, but I want this group of people who are the state to tell me what to do and to take my money. Well, that's fine, but your consent to having this or that group of people tell you what to do and to take your money cannot in any way, make it legitimate for such a group to tell other people what to do and to take their money who don't actually consent to it.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Now, someone might have a follow-up objection and say, but anyone who's in this territory where this particular group of people claims a coercive monopoly, that is, where this state is, If someone doesn't actually consent to it, then that person should leave. Otherwise, they really are consenting. But this simply doesn't follow. Are there any considerations or matters of fact that entail that you or your neighbors should leave if you don't consent to me and my friends telling you what to do and taking your money? Or that you're not leaving? is somehow you're actually consenting to my authority? No, not at all. And there simply are no relevant differences between that and the aggression and inherent injustice upon which every single state is based.
1: Civil governance that is according to a consistent Christian view cannot be a state. That is, it cannot be a monopoly civil government. And therefore, Christian civil governance cannot be theocratic in any sense, which involves the monopoly of a state. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, you may have additional objections to non-monopolistic civil governance. In our previous episodes, we address some prominent ones. If you have feedback or further objections to what we've said in any of our episodes, we welcome you to contact us at our website. Gregory, how can we understand the other key element of what theocratic means, which you mentioned earlier?
0: Another key element in the objectionable and non-necessary sense of theocratic involves civil establishment of religion. Establishmentarianism, or the civil establishment of religion or of a church, involves a certain religion's institutions, beliefs, or practices being given exclusive legal protections or privileges by the state. Such exclusive legal protections or privileges might involve the enforcement of regular attendance and material support of certain religious services and prohibition of at least so-called public services of any other religion. Civil establishment of one particular religious institution might involve compelling a certain public profession of belief or participation in or regular attendance at certain worship or ritual practices and prohibit others. If it's distinguished from civil establishment of a given church or religious institution, since it could be enacted apart from it, civil establishment of religion involves coercive enforcement of what can be called a public morality, in which certain acts of immorality, although not involving aggression, that is, not involving initiation of coercion against another's person or property, are coercively prohibited.
1: So most of our listeners are aware, I think, that such coercive enforcement against non-aggressive immorality was part of the old covenant theocracy. For example, advocating and practicing idolatry blaspheming God, breaking the Sabbath, cursing one's parents, and committing adultery were all punishable by death under the old Mosaic covenant. However, that actual theocracy in which the people of God were organized by God himself with a specific territory and political arrangement was unique, symbolic, and temporary.
0: Yes, I think maybe recounting some of the biblical history Leading up to the Old Covenant theocracy, will provide the context or bigger picture for a clearer understanding of the issues here. After Adam first sinned and broke the covenant of works in Eden, God appeared in judgment. But rather than condemn our first parents to everlasting punishment as they deserved, God had mercy and established the covenant of saving grace, promising a Savior the final eschatological judgment was postponed, and in addition to saving grace, God instituted an order of common grace or general preservation in which human civilization would continue, though with pains and death, as the context in which he would progressively accomplish redemption.
1: After the Great Flood, God made common grace more explicit in a covenant. And though implied by the fall, in light of moral, justicial, and other norms given at creation, God also explicitly instituted civil governance, that is, the administration of civil justice, by proportionate responsive coercion in terms of the lex talionis already mentioned. Following this, and after God made the covenant of saving grace more explicit with Abraham, when God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt... Before bringing them into the promised land, he then established the old covenant through Moses. And from that point until Christ, the promised Savior, fulfilled the law and accomplished salvation, establishing the new covenant, the old covenant theocracy constituted a sort of temporary suspension of the normal operation of the common grace order. Within the promised land, The Old Covenant theocracy was to be a symbolic intrusion of the, even now, still future consummated eschatological kingdom of God of the new heavens and earth. It was that unique arrangement, the Old Covenant, that accounts for God having required coercive penalties against non-aggressive immorality in the land, temporarily. That covenant and its symbolism became obsolete in the fulfillment of Christ and the inauguration of his kingdom in the new covenant church.
0: As we mentioned in episode two, the old Mosaic covenant at the time it was in force didn't constitute a violation of the non-aggression principle because all that exists belongs to God and he certainly has the prerogative to have enacted such an arrangement. Further, God is, of course, within his rights to have now made that arrangement obsolete in establishing his new covenant church through Christ. In keeping with the end of the old covenant, God reveals the resumption of the common grace order in its regular operation during the new covenant era in such scripture passages as Romans 13.
1: The wrongdoing against which New Covenant-era civil governance is to execute just retribution, is qualified by the retribution's coercive means that God has prescriptively ordained. This is a reiteration of God's institution in Genesis 9, and entails that the wrongdoing referred to in Romans 13 can only be a matter of aggression against another's person or property.
0: So, to properly account... For the political implications of the gospel, of the advent of Christ, his accomplishment of redemption, his establishment of the new covenant and the expiration of the old, necessitates recognition that the normal operation of the common grace order has now resumed, and that this necessarily entails the prohibition of not only a monopoly state, but also of any civil establishment of religion. Establishing a monopoly state and a civil establishment of religion are exclusively God's own prerogative. And seeking to enforce them in the New Covenant era, then, is an antichrist usurpation of what belongs to God alone. Right.
1: And God's absolute sovereignty means, among other things, that any and every legitimate human authority must be authorized by him and is thereby strictly limited to what he authorizes. One way of articulating the strict limitation on legitimate civil governance, among other activities that God has prescriptively ordained for the new covenant era, is what we call consistent sphere sovereignty. This view involves a recognition that God has not created society as a single thing, but rather as several distinct types of relations, and that among communal relations, as one of those types, there are a diversity of fundamentally different kinds of communities or societal spheres, such as family, church, civil governance, business, among others. Each with their own respective jurisdictions or areas of responsibility, and that there are normatively within each kind a variety of such particular communities.
0: We introduced other important elements of sphere sovereignty in episodes 9 and 12. In those episodes and others, we've explained that the monopoly of a state is not, in principle, and cannot be, in practical terms, Limited. A state's monopoly in enforcing a claim to exclusive ultimate control over persons and property belonging to others is in principle inherently totalitarian and always tends towards greater totalitarianism in practice. And so, genuinely limited civil governance, civil governance that is according to a consistent Christian view, as we have made clear, cannot be a state. It cannot be a monopoly civil government. And that also means in the new covenant era, establishmentarianism is necessarily excluded. Christian civil governance cannot be theocratic in this sense.
1: To recap what we've said here, We affirm the universality of central religious commitments and that these inevitably direct one's general view of reality, upon which one's politics depends. And this in no way entails theocratic civil governance in the sense of civil establishment of religion by a monopoly state. Rather, such a theocratic view is entirely incompatible with a genuinely Christian view of civil governance. Monopoly is not only inherently unjust, but so too establishmentarianism of any kind and monopoly on which it depends are idolatrous usurpations of God's exclusive prerogative and violations of his prescriptive ordinance for civil governance in the new covenant era.
0: One last word for this episode concerning last things or a biblical understanding of history and eschatology as it relates to a Christian view of politics or civil governance. One additional error that seems to frequently accompany the error of support for theocratic civil governance is not solely what is sometimes characterized as an over-realized eschatology, but is also, it seems to us, symptomatic of the reverse. Namely, an under-realized eschatology.
1: Maybe this point can be explained like this. So-called post-millennialism and or so-called optimistic eschatology takes the overall eventual cultural-societal dominance of Christian belief and practice to be guaranteed. That sort of view is often taken by so-called amillennialists such as ourselves to be an error of overrealization, in that it might seem to mistake elements of the still future consummation of God's kingdom to be already present before the final judgment. While that error is involved, it often seems to be partly rooted in underrealization of the meaning or implications of Christ's establishment of the new covenant. The corresponding expiration of the Old Covenant with its particular symbolic intrusionary character and the entailed resumption of the normal operations of a common grace order. Such an underrealization of inaugurated eschatology in the New Covenant era erroneously supposes that the Old Covenant blessings and curses of the Israelite theocracy. Continue in some fashion outside their inaugurated fulfillment in the institutional church and consummated fulfillment after the final judgment.
0: Yes, that is a significant exegetical error within their view. Many so called post mills or optimists then take these erroneous exegetical conclusions and through them read past historical providence as confirming those conclusions. Further elaboration on these errors, will have to wait for another episode, but we can say that while religion is universal and has necessary implications for cultural life, even for politics, as we've made clear, and further, that some of the implications of the gospel and Christian belief have had, to some extent, definite historical effect It's not promised or otherwise taught in Scripture that there must be overall eventual cultural societal dominance of Christian belief and practice. What is promised is that the Lord will be with His church even to the end of the age and that He will effectually call all His elect from every sort of people into His church and that absolutely nothing can thwart his completing all he has guaranteed to us in scripture. It's in the full confidence of that heavenly hope that we press on. And that's all for now. Thanks for listening to the Reformed Libertarians podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute with Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Bowes.
1: See the website for each episode's show notes and sign up for our email list don't forget to rate and review Reformed Libertarians podcast on Apple podcast or your favorite podcatcher. Find our email and social media on our contact page at reformedlibertarians.com.